it's important to understand that when women are being medicated on antidepressants at this alarming rate, it represents millions and millions of people, even just in the United States. There's about 50 million people in the United States on antidepressants, over 70 million on psychiatric medications countrywide here. And, you know, for men, it's the idea that accepting that you have trauma is a lot harder than accepting that you have something wrong with your brain that simply needs medication. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, revolutionaries. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode. I'm pretty jazzed. And today I'm interviewing Andrea Schumann, who is the owner of Microdrops. You're going to learn more about that throughout the podcast, but you probably heard the little snippet intro where she talks about how 50 million American citizens are on antidepressants. Just so you know, that's more than the population of Canada, and that's just one aspect of the pharmacological prescriptions going on in the US. So this is sort of a piggyback. It's almost like a part four piggybacking on the past three episodes where we're looking at medicine and mental health and healthcare. And here I'm talking to Andrea, who is an Ayurvedic medicine practitioner and specializes in women's health and has developed a product that is an alternative to psychotropic medications. And she really gives some fascinating information in history And how did we really get to where we are with the kind of numbers of psychotropics being prescribed? So this might be controversial for some people, but I encourage you just to listen with an open mind. Also, I will have in the show notes links to learn more about Andrea's products. There will also be a code where yourself or anyone you'd like to give information to can get a discount. And I will do my darndest to get a link to a video I watched that Andrea sent me. It was very moving. It's a video that she produced by interviewing, I believe, over 40 people about their experience. Some of them misdiagnosed, misprescribed, but it was a very powerful video. Okay. And also in the show notes, you will find a link to my Monday Mind Ups email list. This is a bite-sized piece of content to really kick your week off and something that you can refer back to. And it's designed to really shift the mindset. Think outside of the box, think in controversial ways, and start to ask yourself the big questions of what is pulling you out of your dreams and what's pulling you back into what you want on the deepest level. So that's in the show notes. So without further ado, here is my interview with Andrea Schumann of Microdrops. Okay. So Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We'll just start with you telling myself and the audience about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. Um, really excited to be here in one of your early new podcasts. And 
My background uh, is pretty meandering. I started as a massage therapist when I was 17 years old because it was the thing that I had done naturally since I was a really little kid. I would sit in the dark with my mom when she had migraines and work on her head. And it was just something that came very naturally to me. So I was graduated high school a little bit early and just decided that I would do massage therapy because it seemed so obvious. And I did it for um, quite a while. There, there was about, uh, you know, I guess 10 years that I did just massage uh, before I started studying Ayurvedic medicine. I went to the California College of Ayurveda. And Ayurveda, for people who don't know, is traditional Indian medicine. It's a whole system of medicine like, like traditional Chinese medicine is, including uh, nutrition, herbal therapies, uh, body work, herbs, like the whole, the whole gamut spiritual practices, meditation, uh, and physical work. So it's a complete lifestyle medicine. And uh, I practiced Ayurveda for for quite many years uh, and then moved into slightly different efforts. I became an entrepreneur in the food space. I started making ghee. So I owned a ghee company uh, for for the last 10 years, helping people heal from a nutritional perspective. And my interest in this world of psychology has been long coming because uh, from the time I was young in my practice, even 17, the, uh, the population that's been drawn to me has been people, in, women in midlife transitions have been coming to me just naturally uh, this whole time. And when I was younger, I, you know, I swear I would give wonderful advice to these women without having any idea what I was talking about from an actual experiential perspective. And then once I entered midlife myself, I realized what a dynamic and transformative time midlife is for women and people who, you know, women identifying people and just people in general. So, you know, during my own transition, as I stepped into, you know, to the foothills of, of midlife myself, I found myself a mom of two young kids. Uh, in the middle of the Nevada desert, knowing almost no one, with my husband working about 100 hours a week, and uh, myself owning a company that was two states away, and uh, having a real hard time balancing uh, raising two young kids, having them with me all the time, trying to run a business and doing it effectively as a solo parent. All of the training that I had, you know, working with women in these stages, all of the training that I had about postpartum care, because that was my specialty in Ayurveda, was women's health and postpartum care. None of it actually prepared me to dip into my own dark spaces, which I really took a solid slide into after nursing uh, or ending uh, weaning my second child. I had a real intense bout of weaning depression, which is uh, something people don't talk as much about uh, as they do postpartum depression. And for me, postpartum depression, I had handled, I was really, you know, set myself up great to not experience that and did not set myself up quite as well for the next hormonal shifts. And then just the circumstantial parts of my life that were, that were bringing in these changes. And it, it made me face a lot of difficult faces, you know, anger, frustration, depression, just being locked a bit inside myself and not knowing how to come out. So that's, you know, kind of my backstory of how I got interested in this space. 
And then, you know, when I approached my, I approached a friend of mine who's a naturopath and I said, I'm really struggling with this. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with these feelings that I've helped many people through and have great insight for, but I can't get my own head out of myself and I can't get myself above water. And she reminded me that I had all the tools that I needed. She also reminded me that I'd been, you know, formulating these products for other people for a long time. And that uh, at first she gave me some of her own formulas to help me just get clear. And then once I was clear, I just got real busy um, looking for a solution to my, to my problem. Thank you for all that really authentic sharing. And what you said there is really important about weaning depression. That is not talked about. Uh, and as I'm listening to you, I think I experienced that pretty profoundly, actually. And it wasn't easy to name because, you know, my daughter was 14 months old when I weaned her. So it didn't make a lot of sense uh, postpartum wise. So thank you. No. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely still not talked about and it's still a huge problem, you know, day and age where we had supply chain issues affecting baby formula and everyone was just saying, oh, just just nurse, just, you know, whatever. And obviously that's ideal, but the lack of understanding that comes around all of the problems around nursing for many women, including difficulty nursing and not being able to produce enough milk you know, going to work, having pump in closets, uh, doing all kinds of things. And then by the time they're done nursing or they're just over it, or they just can't handle like um, their body being shared in that way anymore. When you wean, the hormones in your body change drastically. So you have all this like prolactin that's been going and going, going, keeping your, keeping your body elevated. And in some ways creating, um, creating some bonding and creating some uh, feelings of warmth and yumminess that you get with your baby. And then when those go away, it takes the body quite some time, months and months to re-regulate hormonally. And that, that time for a lot of people is just looked at as like self-defect. People inwardly look at this, uh, there's something wrong with me. I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. I have you know, there's just something wrong with my my body or my chemistry, but it's actually quite uh, quite normal when your hormones are uh, falling apart around you and having to rebuild that your emotional structure is also going to change. And I think that that is an issue for women that I've seen some of your material and the beautiful work you're doing, just even snippets, and about how women's hormones. This is a personal interest of mine as well as someone who has been on that journey a long time, gotten my genes looked at, uh, looked at really in-depth tests like the Dutch test. And it's been through naturopathic care that it's been like, oh yeah, this is why you're having all these symptoms. Whereas traditional medicine has said, you are so great on all these tests. It's amazing. And I'm like, that's fantastic. And so why am I having all these issues? And it it made me think about how in a video that I will put a link to in the show notes, you talked about how psychiatric meds are prescribed to women more than men. Yeah. When I started, when I started getting in, I mean, I've, the backstory of my interest in psychiatric medication goes back to my childhood because my own, my mom was antidepressants for 30 years. She actually just came off recently, which I'm really, really um, uh, thrilled about. And she's doing great. You know, 
when I started digging into the statistics that I wanted to understand what was really happening and what my place was in this uh, in this world um, and in the world of mental health, I found what the statistics I found were pretty startling, uh, extremely gender biased, and you know, women uh, in general, at least these I can pull out the statistics for the United States are two times as likely to be medicated on antidepressants. And it's not gender bias that goes only one way. Um, men are also more likely to be put on ADHD medication for undiagnosed trauma. So it's, it's just in general, we have a gender imbalance and um, I'm going to use the big P word patriarchy and say that patriarchy affects both genders and it affects women because uh, we're less believed about our pain. Um, you know, we, there's a deep rooted uh, history and psychology of uh, linking women's pain to hysteria. You know, th- those, those little bits of sexism don't go away. I mean, we've recently seen diagnosis of like hysteria, hysteria in the media. It's important to understand that when women are being medicated on antidepressants at this alarming rate, it represents millions and millions of people, even just in the United States. There's about 50 million people in the United States on antidepressants, over 70 million on psychiatric medications countrywide here. I know the stats are a bit different in Canada, but I know that there, um, there's also overprescription problems happening uh, up there as well. You know, for men, it's the idea that uh, accepting that you have trauma is a lot harder than accepting that you have something wrong with your brain that simply needs medication. If it's just a physical problem, it has a physical solution. Ain't nothing we need to dig in there. Don't look behind the curtain. Okay. So we've got a medication that'll take care of that, but we're not actually dealing, we're not dealing with the problem on either end. And the problem on both ends is there's the, you know, there's, a lot of reasons women end up on these medications uh, that have nothing to do with them not being tolerant to pain. When I started interviewing people was when things got, they got real passionate for me because I I interviewed a variety of women. uh, I want to say I interviewed over 40, 40 people. The common refrain I heard over and over again was I started taking antidepressants after a sexual assault. So that was so common and it came up so often and it really just hit me in the heart. Like how many people are having a real experience that causes real trauma and then being put on a medication with no uh, plan to come off it. It's like assigning people a status of damaged goods and needing to, you know, be medicated rather than to work through the trauma they experienced fully. Right. So rather, that was a, yeah. Rather than seeing that as a normal response to abnormal events, that's a very common phrase in our field of that yeah. these post-traumatic reactions, that's normal when you've had an abnormal event and you've had a traumatic event. Um, absolutely. I could speak to that all day. I think that there's probably people listening, you know, cheering and maybe crying in their car. And uh, absolutely. The overprescription is a real problem and it is where many of my clients my ideal client is probably like a 40 to 65 year old hippie mom and so that doesn't preclude them from being given antidepressants almost immediately Um, but it does mean that i've had a lot of experience working with people who wanted to get off of their medication which you said it had no expiration date 
So when I've advised people who were thinking about going on antidepressants, that's been one thing that I've been clear on. Like, talk about your entry strategy and your exit strategy. What is the trajectory here? Because they're not supposed to be uh, lifelong. And I've seen what happens when people are on sleeping pills, for example, for 30 years. That is unbelievable. What can happen to a person? Just their system is wired in a way that isn't very helpful. But like you said about your mom, I mean, we are incredible innate healers. We are, in in my opinion, innately well. This is an overlay of experience. And post-traumatic reactions are that, that they're really a poignant indicator of an experience, symptoms of an experience. But we are made to heal ourselves. So someone on sleeping pills for 30 years, someone on SSRIs for 30 years, we still have all the hope in the world that we can get off of that and come back into balance. Absolutely. And it it highly depends on your experience with your practitioner and your prescribing doctor and also your philosophy around interaction with certain professionals. So my personal philosophy when I interact with a medical professional, it's that we're collaborating on my care. Yes. Kind of period, end of story. Um, It's because I started as a practitioner very early on. I know that practitioners are not gods. We are not infallible. And we absolutely require the help of the expert. And I will call the expert to be the person with the body that's being treated, person with the mind that's being treated. So often um, in Western medicine, we're encouraged to give up our power to the practitioner as the kind of all-knowing person who can fix our problem. And it's really comforting because like if you're a child, you can, you know, sort of outsource to your parents the things to get taken care of. And there's that imbalance of power that happens. Uh, which is natural in a practitioner um, patient relationship. And, you know, you, you want to be taken care of, especially when you're vulnerable and without a sense of power in your own, uh, cho- in your own healing. It's also really easy to let things get out of control and out of, um, out of your, uh, out of your power. So like, for instance, when my mother was put on antidepressants after, uh, recovering trauma, suppressed memory trauma early in her 40s and her midlife transitions is when it happens for a lot of people. They start kind of waking up to what the heck happened to me in childhood and what the heck happened to my mom in childhood was really bad. And when she came came around to understanding it, she had a break. She went into um, psychiatric care um, and inpatient facility for a number of months when I was only 12 and was put on those medications then. And was told she wouldn't come off them. And it was in my research that I realized the medications she was on were never studied for use for more than two years. They weren't developed for that. So as much as her doctor was preaching science to her, this is the medical way to treat your chemical imbalance, which, you know, by the way, there's been recent research showing that that is not what causes depression. So, you know, she 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 was just told this was the treatment. She wasn't told that was an off-label use of the treatment, but it is. In fact, like using these medications for 30 years is not scientific. It has no science behind it. There's absolutely no studies that support it. And the studies that, sh- that have looked at long-term antidepressant use are overwhelmingly negative. So if you actually look at them, one of the ones that really struck me was a study in the journal of Translational Psychiatry. I believe it was in 2017, and it was about empathy. 
And uh, the title of the study is something like uh, antidepressants, not depression itself, reduces the pain, uh, the, the response, uh, the empathetic response to the pain of others. So meaning uh, the people who are on long-term antidepressants have less empathy for other people's pain. So I just want to take like a moment to like consider that because if what's happening is that there's 50 million people in the United States on medications that when used over two years, and by the way, the average use is over two years. So over the, over the evaluated time frame, the average person is on it over that amount of time. And the average person on an antidepressant has not even seen a doctor in the last six months. You know, so if you have 50 million people wandering around on a drug that over time reduces empathy, try to imagine the societal impact that that's actually having that we're not recognizing as part of the um, moment we're in. Oh, absolutely. It's very impactful. I love how you said, take a moment to consider that because we know in our field, the research shows in all the studies that what's most important in outcome-based research for a client in therapy is the relationship between the client and the therapist. It's not about techniques. It's not, that's all nice, but you can't do any of that if people don't feel safe and connected and safe and connected does require some empathic activation, right? The amygdala can get used for one thing or another and it is involved in empathy as well. So we even know that just in our field, the focus is primarily on connection, connection, attachment, co-regulation, and empathy. So that's just one pocket of looking at this. There's such bigger societal meanings and ramifications. Um, and your beautiful video that I'm going to link again, that was very impactful. I may keep coming back to it, shows some snippets of, you know, media, the media and how as someone who have, I haven't watched mainstream media since I was 17. I just knew what it was doing to me. Um, yeah, it, it's absolutely imperative in this divisive moment we're in that we have empathy. Yeah. And the, you know, the video that you're referencing is uh, I've been developing a mobile application. Um, the reason I'm developing this application is because I've noticed that people don't have good recall when they go into their therapists, their doctors, when I, when they're asked about how something is working, how their therapy is working, how their medication that they're on is working, maybe how their natural medicine is working. Um, it is incredibly difficult for people to recall the granular detail of their day-to-day -day experience. Um, and that experience is necessary to be translated to the practitioner to know whether or not something's working. So if some, if someone is on an antidepressant and they go into their therapist and their therapist says, how are you doing? They go, oh, I guess it's okay. You know, and then they just say, okay, well, I've refilled your prescription for the next six months. And that's, you know, kind of the flavor of a lot of people's experience. It, it doesn't actually get down to, well, you know, actually on Thursday, I started out the day pretty good, but by 10 a.m., I was crying and I just didn't know why. And then I recovered. I was fine. I had lunch. And then by two o'clock, I was so tired. I could barely open my eyes. But then around five o'clock, I was fine. I had a glass of wine. And then, you know, I uh, kind of rolled into my evening. 
And then what they remember is it was fine. Okay. But they don't remember I was crying at 10. They don't remember these other pieces. It's easier not to recount all those things, uh, especially if we don't journal, especially if we don't have any kind of physical devices that we're going to write in. So the application I'm developing has a little platform in it. I call Leap, the lived experience analysis platform. And uh, the point of that, we kind of based it a bit on on how we look uh, through the lens of Ayurvedic medicine. So in traditional Indian medicine, we don't, there's no binary there. It's not, I'm depressed, I'm not depressed. Instead, we look at degrees of energy in the space. So your physical energy could be, I can't get out of bed. Your physical energy could be, I'm perfectly ready for the day and feel great. Or your physical energy could be, I'm buzzing around so hard, I can't sit down. And and, and that um, ex- those extreme ends happen on both sides. The same is true of hunger. You know, you have a normal hunger or you have no appetite or you're so hungry you can't stop eating. Like there are, um, there's a hypo and hyper function to almost everything. And then beyond that, people have lived experience that goes beyond the scales in psychology that are being assessed and psychiatry, especially not psychology, psychiatry that are being assessed, uh, you know, to find out the efficacy of a particular drug. So if the problem that's being treated is depression. If you are on a drug that makes you feel number to your emotions and you don't feel as depressed, but you just feel kind of blah or meh, you know, you may not feel as depressed. And so that's considered a win from the perspective of the prescriber. I feel less depressed. The antidepressant is working. Bing, bing, we're done. But what they haven't looked at, you know, maybe this person that they're talking to is having a hard time connecting with their child, their partner, um, they don't feel joy. They um, they may not feel depression. They might not all. They all may also not feel happiness. They might also not remember the last time they belly laughed. You know, those are important metrics of lived experience that create a whole life and a whole picture of who someone is. And uh, right now, those metrics haven't been scaled into the medical uh, the medical profession. And so, what I'm hoping to do with this application is create a brief you know, brief 30 second, 40 second check-ins with people where they can slide a scale to the to a, a metric that really relates to where they're at and then gather some data so that when they go to their professional, they see um, all of the nuanced pieces. Um, some of these are really important for proper diagnostics because GPs are in the United States, the general practitioners are the people prescribing all the antidepressants by and large, not the psychiatrists. And so as the psychiatrists are actually sounding the alarm about overprescription, like it's the American Psychiatric Association that's sounding the alarm about overprescription and happening largely through GPs. But what, you know, as a practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine, as a practitioner of women's health, what I understand is that if you have these this granular data, these granular data, when you find out this person is like nearly falling asleep every day at two o'clock and that that's when their depression is happening and they're 42 years old and they have a female hormonal system. Well, I'm sorry, they're perimenopausal. They're not clinically depressed. We need to actually treat their hormone system, not just their, um, not treat them like they are, you know, just a mental health problem. Mental health is typically a, a symptom of all kinds of other things going on in the body, and it is not in isolation. Absolutely. My doctor's first kind of suggestion when I came in with really severe PMS and PMDD was antidepressants. And I feel very fortunate to be very empowered around my health. And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to ask for a bunch of tests. I just want to see, like, what does my blood work say? What what does an ultrasound say? What does a pap say? 
um, didn't say anything, but that's okay. Cause it led me down other routes of more testing, but that was the first, that was the first suggestion. So that was very interesting. I know what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, it's very interesting to note that like the main drug right now for PMDD, as you mentioned, is Therafem. There's a branded drug called Therafem, which is exactly the same drug as Prozac. It is Prozac. It is a rebranded Prozac. And when you look at it from a financial perspective, when Therafem was created was when Prozac ran out of its exclusive use patent. So Prozac ran out of its exclusive use patent. It became a generic drug that people could use you know, other companies can manufacture it just, at least in the United States, I really don't know how it works in Canada, but the United States, it works like this. And so voila, we created PMDD. And now like we just, when you have a for-profit system, like we do in the United States, it's, it works like a business. You, um, you know, they, they had a, um, a dip in their profits and then they needed to create a use to once again, have an exclusive use for the drug that they developed, you know, when we're actually looking at this and we're looking through the lens of gender bias through patriarchy, we have to also look through the lens of kind of for-profit systems like in the United States and how that plays into that plays into the whole thing. So it's like a whole swirl of sociological factors that have got us here, which means that the answer is just as complex as the problem. Absolutely. I can speak from my own experience that looking at the Dutch test that actually laid out all, yeah. The laid out all of the pathways where things were shunting, where about estrogen methylation. And I got a, you know, I'm a pretty smart person and have done a lot of studying and have a master's in science. And I needed my naturopath to like hold my hand and walk me through because it, I am a complex person and I knew it wasn't a simple solution because I live a pretty amazing and clean life. Uh, and so I knew it had to be a whole interplay of epigenetics and all kinds of things. And yeah, absolutely. It wasn't an easy answer. Turns out now with the herbs I'm on that actually the, the solution isn't that complex, but the problem to figure out where to even begin, it was a complex answer. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the Dutch test. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening, who's having, what people would label a mental health condition, but it's correlating to women's issues. I mean, absolutely. And you named something very important there. The advent of something called PMDD does link up really well with the perimenopausal women's profile. I mean, yeah, it really does. I turned out not to be perimenopausal, which was mysterious to my doctor, but it's okay because it led me to other things. So this might be a place for you to introduce your products, Microdrops, spelt M-Y-C-R-O-D-R-O-P-S. So micro with a Y. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mike. So Microdrops were born out of that time. You know, I uh, spoke about in my intro where my own naturopath helped me kind of just clear my brain fog. Um, And a friend of mine had given me some uh, microdose psychedelics, um, some microdosed mushrooms. And uh, it wasn't a very well-made tincture. In fact, it was sort of going off a little bit vinegary. Um, I took a few drops of it and it actually helped a ton on day one. And I just started being interested in it and started being interested in this 
kind of practice that I was hearing about. I'm, you know, I had had personal experience with psychedelics since I was much younger, uh, since I was a teenager. And it was, it was definitely recreational. And my, my therapeutic use of them didn't start for so much, much later. And I had, in fact, decided I wasn't going to interact with them for many, many years until this happened. And my friend gave me this product. And so I tried it. And what I realized was that people are right now using psychedelics specifically when my product microdrops don't contain psychedelics, but I'll get, I'll get there to, as to what they are. What I noticed is that people are, uh, are using microdosing to treat anxiety, depression, lack of focus, to enhance creativity. And uh, from an energetic perspective, these are all different directions. So when we're trying to fix depression, we need to lift the system up. When we're trying to fix anxiety, we're bringing things down. When we're trying to um, improve focus, we're kind of bringing things in. And from a um, from a herbal perspective and from an energetic perspective, these are all different. So asking one mushroom to move in all these different directions without the aid of any other herbs is actually just not that effective. Um, and so in in Ayurvedic medicine, it's very unusual that you'll see an herb given alone occasionally and for like specific, uh, specific reasons or in a specific form. But in general, um, we look at herbal medicine like a play or like a story where you have like a protagonist that is um, in the lead and then you have a supporting character. Sometimes you have an antagonist who kind of keeps the first two in check. And then you have um, what we call a deep or a digestive that is going to bring things all together and sort of help the digestion, help the bioavailability. So we're looking at treating the main thing. We're looking at treating the things around it. We're looking at making sure that we're not over-treating. And then we're making sure you can actually digest the remedy, right? So when I learned that these psychedelics were being used in this way, I became very interested in creating something that would make them more effective because I had heard from some people that they're treating their anxiety. They took some microdose and it got worse. Well, that makes sense for some people. And that doesn't mean that the mushrooms are ineffective. It doesn't mean that microdosing can't work for them. You know, what it does mean is that they probably needed a supportive formula to make sure that they were actually headed in the direction that they needed to go. So I like to describe that if microdosing for people is the uh, lifeboat that kind of lifted them out of the water, then micro drops are the oar and the rudder that will get them to shore to the space where they need to go. So if we're trying to treat anxiety specifically, and we know that that's not always, you know, just one thing, like sometimes people are anxious and like the next morning they're pretty low and depressed, you know, it's not always, you know, super binary for people. So I created three products, uh, all of which have a really stable base. So they all share the same, what I call my micro synergy base. My products can be used alone without the use of psychedelics, um, and they really shine as helpers for microdosing. In my base, I used lion's mane, which is a wonderful uh, mushroom, functional mushroom used for cognition and brain health. And we use a highly concentrated dual extract form of that, which bypasses some of the digestive difficulties of mushrooms and kind of gets to the real brain-improving neurogenesis pieces of lion's mane. So when lion's mane has been discovered to help build brain cells to actually uh, heal nervous tissue. So we've got lion's mane in there. We've got cacao, which has been used for millennia in a, in conjunction with mushroom medicines to make them more effective part of the serotonin chain. 
We've got coconut MCTs to make things more bioavailable and help things absorb into your system better. And then a variety of herbs and all the bases, um, Brahmi, which is Bacopa maniara, passion flower. These things really help to stabilize the nervous system. So all of the products have these running through it. So no matter which one you choose, and even if you alternate between them, uh, you're still getting the buildup of these mood regulating, nervous system regulating herbs there. And then each formula has a little herbal kicker in each direction. So we've got one um, I call microactive motivated, and that one is for that's for lifting the energy for, I say, for the depressed and couch locked people. And then we've got one that's called Microflow. Um, and the first formula we have out is called Focus. And that one's really great to treat irritability and help get clear so that you can focus on the work ahead. And that one has herbs like rhodiola and goticola that improve brain function and help just clarity because oftentimes we're irritable because we're not seeing the situation very clearly, right? And then uh, we've also got one called Micro Calm Grounded, and that's full of roots that really, I say, pull your balloon string down and put your feet on the ground, like Kava Kava, Mucuna Purens, which is a dopamine regulator. All of my products, uh, it's got ashwagandha. All of my products, uh, 100% of them are natural plant and mushroom based. Uh, and contain no synthetic components, whatever, uh, whatsoever. And they're food-based and they taste really good. So I just wanted to create something that I wanted to take because I didn't want to take tincture three times a day. I didn't want to take pills, like handfuls of pills all the time. I wanted, um, I wanted to quit coffee because I know that it is helpful, but I am still married to and in love with my coffee right at this moment of having a five and an eight-year-old. That I also wanted something I could literally put in my coffee and antidote some of the caffeine's effects. Um, and so I wasn't just, you know, feeling anxious that I drank too much coffee. So I created a really yummy elixir that can be taken directly by mouth, stuck in your water, your coffee, whatever, and just helps to smooth out your day. And what it does is it's really quite synergistic with microdosing. So if you are a microdoser, it does simply make it work better. Amazing. And so that's microdrops.com with a Y. And when I looked on your site, I did your quiz, which was interesting. And also I looked at the reviews. And as someone who takes a lot of herbal remedies, it's beautiful to see people say this actually tastes amazing. So that's cool. And people have you know, said rave things about it. And I think that's really important as humans to hear that social proof too, that people are going out, trying it, finding it's great and finding it's really palatable and enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've got more products coming out, which will be really exciting. We are going to be working with a little bit of CBD and other cannabinoids and just working with the microdose space in general um, of the idea that you can use small amounts of products that when used in large amounts might create a mental shift. Some people might call high. In our case, we're going to use them in such small amounts that will not happen. And, um, you know, we will uh, eventually have a version that is infused with microdose cannabis, meaning like two to three milligrams of perceptual amounts of cannabis per serving. And then once there's a legal pathway, we will do so with psilocybin as well. So the idea is that you can start with plants, plants only, you know, and that may be enough without going to the stronger plants and, and mushrooms, you know, for you for you to find mental wellness in your daily routine. And then some people might uh, need something a little more. Amazing. And we will talk at the end about a link that you will have for the listeners 
I'd love to ask you a question now, shift into the questions that I ask all of the guests. And the first one is, what does mental health revolution mean to you? Mm -hmm. I really liked this question when you asked me. And I like that that's really the core of your podcast because I'm excited about the mental health revolution. And to me, what that means is just people waking up en masse to the fact that they are in control of their life, their health, and their narrative. And that's really like the mental health revolution, understanding that they are the person that is in control of making their life better and uh, in control of what it looks like to you know, to name themselves and identify themselves. Beautiful. Thank you. The next question, I'm going to kind of combine it into two because you inspired me there about the way you're talking about empowerment. So the two sides of this coin are about a time where you've held yourself back from fully living your truth, your dream, your desire. And then the other side of that coin is a time when you've really stepped into that. You've taken a risk. You've lived your truth, your dream, your desire. You've named yourself, as you say. Yeah. Um, so I would say that this experience wasn't really that long ago. It was just a few years back when I realized my other company was not going to make it through the pandemic. It was falling apart. I couldn't really do anything about it. it I was really self um you know, getting getting down on myself that like I had failed, I had created this thing that just didn't work. And, you know, that was like a place where, um, you know, I, I was holding on to something that in spite of everything I was seeing in front of me, despite of the feelings, in spite of feelings I had, in spite of my gut, I kept holding on to something that was not working, because I was afraid that I'd be a failure if I didn't finally get a hold of it, turn it around and make it a success. And of course, that comes from, you know, our own trauma, right? My own trauma and my, you know, childhood of what it means to be a success. Yeah, it was not that long ago that I experienced that. Thank you. I also wonder, uh, because I've heard that so many times in working with therapists, primarily now I'm supporting, mentoring, training, supervising therapists, coaching them. And I hear that this difficulty letting something go that isn't working. And it may be working for everyone else sometimes, uh, but it isn't working for that therapist anymore. And so you talked about how the feelings of failure, that is common, the fear. And I wonder if at any point you thought about how your changes might impact others and you worried that you changing and following the path you needed to would in some way harm other people. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, okay. I had a business partner uh, who I love very much. He's amazing. And he um, uh, went to Ayurvedic school with me, who I dragged up from another city to be part of my uh, my business. And so I felt a lot of responsibility when um, the business wasn't working out that I changed another person's entire life, you know, for this thing. And letting go of that also meant like, Letting go, you know, letting someone down whose entire life had changed, you know, for, for this, would would put a lot of weight and trust in me. Absolutely, uh, had had those experiences, and and you know, and what you're saying about just like knowing when it's time to, when it's time to just be done with something. It's it's a it's about self trust, right? And so, like, um, 
when you, if you can't admit to yourself in spite of all the evidence that's around you, that something is happening, it's showing a lack of trust in yourself. So, um, and then, you know, my, my children, obviously my partner, you know, a lot, a, a lot had been put behind me doing this. And I was terrified that if I let go of this business, there wouldn't be another, I'm 42, you know, well, I am 42 now at the time I was like 39, you know, like, like, oh, there's not going to be another uh, chance at this. And I'm going to end up a middle-aged woman with no, uh, with no business to show for it. Right. I was freaked out, but that's also like a, a symptom of like the space that I was in. And so like, thank God, you know, to be able to rescue oneself is the, the, the best <laughs> best oh, feeling you can have. That's well put. That's that's that other side of that coin, the rescuing the self. So facing the things that were being denied, facing the the difficulty around all of that to walk a different path. Tell us about that. Yes, for me um, and for many people, I think I uh, personally, like I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that like getting therapy was going to be a really important part of the experience to um to transition. So it's not just, you know, it's not cowboy heroics. I can take care of myself. I don't need, you know, anybody, whatever. Um, it's once you kind of get your head above water and then you're in one place and you look around, okay, I'm not damaged. I'm not drowning. I can, now I can move around a little bit. Okay. Now I can start swimming. Um, now I'm in the lifeboat. Okay. Now I'm looking around in the lifeboat. Okay. Things are okay. We're, we're, we're not dead. We're, we're paddling a little bit. And then once I had what I needed to start moving towards shore, what I saw on the shore was a person that I needed. I needed reflection. And like you mentioned earlier about connection uh, with your therapist, you know, trumping all those techniques. Like, I mean, yes, the techniques are important. Yes, they're interesting. Yes, you know, different techniques are going to work better for different people. I feel like my therapist was brought to me by by magic. It was absolutely like... um nobody was finding a therapist. It's so hard to find therapists right now. They're overbooked. There's not enough people. And so the likelihood that you're going to run into a therapist you don't connect with is pretty high if you get one at all. And the person that I ended up with what couldn't have been more perfect. She's absolutely amazing. You know, from day one, some simple reframes helped me understand how I was holding myself back in conjunction with the therapies I was doing with myself. And the reflections I got from this amazing professional, I'm, I became a champion of therapy because previously I would have, in my young life, I would have told you, oh, I don't need that. That's not important. You know, I've got my friends for that, you know, all the, all this stuff. But what she was able to do with me in like two sessions was like undeniable. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting to hear what you said, because that's an important distinction. For me, my mantra in life is about like live your dreams fully and freely because you not only set yourself free, but you set everyone around you. You uplevel the world. Your clients see it in the case of therapists. But that's an important piece of that. When I look at the therapists I support, I support them to do all the different steps you said, get into the boat. And it's not about cowboy heroics. I love that. We still you know, when we're pants crappingly scared about something, we do need support. We need somebody to be our Sherpa in whatever way that looks. Therapy, 
coaching, whatever it may be, we're not made to do this alone. So I'm glad you made that distinction. It wasn't cowboy heroics. I love that. Uh, I love that. And I can be a real advocate for like, let's just drop kick the world. And people look at me like, um, I'm terrified. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. It's a process. Like, yeah, I, well, it's not that fast. We don't have to drop kick the world right now. Let's actually, right. you know, support each other and walk the process. So I'm glad you said that. Thank you. So what else would you like the audience to know? I would love for you to tell the audience what you're generously offering and anything else as we're closing that you'd like them to know. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for this time um, to, you know, to speak with you and I, I love your energy and I'm so excited to see how this podcast unveils and to be one of your listeners. Thank you. And uh, we're offering your listeners with code expanded at checkout when you go to microdrops.com with a Y, $10 off on your first purchase. And we invite you to go and take our quiz to see which one might be the best for you. And just know this isn't only for people who use psychedelics. Um, it, they are formulated to make your psychedelic microdosing work better, but they are chock full of nootropic and adaptogen herbs, and they just are a joy to take. They're a wonderful part of transitions if you are tapering down off medications, of course, with the caveat that you, um, you overlook your medication and the herbs you know, with your physician to make sure that there's no issues there, which there aren't for most the common psychiatric medications. So in general, you know, if you want to go over to our um, our website, it's full of blogs on on the subject of psych psychology, on the subject of microdosing, and then uh, on the subject of herbs in general. And we invite you to take ten dollars off and give our stuff a try, and uh, we hope to see you over there. Well, thank you so much, and this has been a pleasure. Thank you, myself. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much, Erin. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution. 